Hi, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. One of the things this podcast tries to do is celebrate the connections between culture and science and celebrate science as an important part of our culture. And I was therefore particularly happy to be able to sit down some time ago with the wonderful writer and director, Alex Garland, who's known for his writing uh, of books, but also films, including 28 Days Later, and his directing of that blockbuster Ex Machina about artificial intelligence. He went on after that to uh, create a series called Devs, which is really about actually quantum mechanics and the multiverse. And I was really happy to be able to sit down and talk to him about all of these things. He's incredibly interesting uh, thoughtful and self-deprecating and his background is, is interesting because of the way it merges if you wish art and science his father his grandfather was a Nobel Prize winning scientist and yet as he described to me he really felt he had no aptitude or interest in science early on a developing interest in art and literature caused him to begin to ask fundamental questions and that in his 20s got him interested in science and then he carried that interest clearly in his writing and has merged beautifully this fascination of science and science fiction uh, that's led to his uh, success as a writer and film director. And it was, it was great to talk about this interest in questioning and also the relationship between science and art, many of the similarities in the way it's carried out, the collaborative nature of science and art, both of which are often thought to be individual pursuits, but are really quite collaborative. I hope you'll be as fascinated by this discussion with this uh, remarkably interesting man as I was. And you can watch it without advertisements on the Critical Mass uh, Substack site if you subscribe, if you become a paid subscriber to that site. And I hope you'll consider that because uh, subscriptions to that site go to help support the nonprofit foundation, the Origins Project Foundation that produces this podcast. Otherwise, you can well, watch the podcast on our YouTube channel or listen to it anywhere you can listen to podcasts, no matter how you watch or listen to this. I hope you'll be inspired and provoked by uh, Alex Garland and you'll enjoy the discussion as much as I did with him. Well, Alex, thank you very much for having us at your studio in the final stage of the post-production of your new project and I really appreciate you taking time out to talk to me. Pleasure. Now I want to I want to start with your origins. Um, there are many reasons why I've enjoyed talking to you in the past but and now why I want to talk to you and one of them is is the relationship between your work and creatively exploring scientific themes. Your grandfather was Peter Medor and a, a, a very famous Nobel Prize winning scientist. Did, did that have any impact on you? Did, he, did Early on, did you talk, did he influence you at all or anything like that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, b uh, big influence, absolutely, yeah. I mean, because uh, um, from a very early age, I knew he was a, uh, a scientist who uh, was taken very seriously and it meant that people in the family saw him a certain kind of way, and um, he, he he was also he, he was a he was a scientist who was interested in disseminating information. Yeah, he wrote. Uh, I remember reading a wonderful book by him when I was a kid. It was a Thinking Radish. Yeah, Thinking Radish. That's it. Yeah. So so he he didn't want to 
keep science behind a kind of intellectual firewall. He, he, he wanted to disseminate stuff about science and that included uh, to his grandchildren. So, it, but, but he also, I think he had a disconnect between uh, what he knew and what I could possibly know. Uh. So for example, I remember when I was about 10, he asked me to explain, uh, which would be to speculate on mm. why it is that wheels on cars look like they're going backwards sometimes. Uh-huh. Now, the the answer to that is incredibly complicated. Yeah. Literally, no way a 10-year-old would be yeah. able to get anywhere near the answer. And and so so then I would sort of struggle for a bit, and, and then he tried to explain it. And, um, and the explanation lost me very, very quickly. Now, in that he's trying to sort of provoke interest and yeah, yeah knows get you to think about how to answer questions regardless of whether they're the right answers yeah and he, the other thing he used to do i mean he he was he was sort of you know chatty and sort of yeah like he wanted to pass things on um one of my main memories of him is uh playing chess with him and and he was a very very good chess player and uh and I think when I played him as a child, his challenge was trying to find ways in which I could win. And he was putting his his chess playing ability to, to that end. Uh, I, I certainly wasn't playing him in any meaningful sense. But yeah, so so I knew I, I knew exactly who he was and I, I knew um, I knew that he meant something in the scientific community and I knew he had uh, a principle which was to, to get people who weren't scientists interested in science. Um, uh, that said, um, I had no facility for science at all as a child. So uh, the the exams we do when you turn 16, mm-hmm. are, are they like SATs? Is it SAT? Uh, well, the, it's probably more rigorous than SATs. But, but that age? Y- yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So... In my school, the school I went to, I was I was in the end not allowed to take either chemistry or biology or physics for that sixteen age exam because they said there's just no point you'll fail them. So I did something called environmental science, which was the thing they gave you if you couldn't yeah, exactly. handle maths or chemistry or physics. So uh, and actually that was true across the board with me. I, I wasn't I wasn't very adept at school at all, except really. The English I could manage, I suppose. Was it, uh, you know, I was going to ask whether, well, was it that you weren't adept or you just didn't want to spend the time working on it or? Um, I, I think mean, did it school was, bore you or? Y- yeah, I found school really difficult. I, I, I was, I, I just wasn't very good at participating in it, I think. But um, uh, it, it, it did bore me. But I think it was very, very badly taught. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm I'm about to turn fifty, and so it's it's an era of school where they weren't really interested in interesting pupils. Uh-huh. They, they they were just giving you factory. a bunch of shit to you know eat and yeah. then repeat back again. And so there was it, it wasn't until my twenties. By then, my grandfather was dead, uh, unfortunately, that I began to get an interest in science and um, and try to put together some sort of knowledge base, I suppose. Well, you know, the interesting thing is it's kind of sad. I do think that we tend to turn off kids. I mean, kids are natural scientists, and, and, and the kind of thing your grandfather was doing, which is asking questions and getting to think about things. I mean, exploring the world around you, playing yeah. when you're a kid is really com- is really science. And, and then we, we tend to 
teach it in such a way or have in many cases taught in such a way that turns people off. It's just rote memorization or, or regurgitation, not a sense of discovery, or even the sense that you're asking questions. I, I mean, I was really intrigued to hear that, you're, that, that your grandfather did that. I'm not surprised because I've always admired him from, re, from afar reading. But the idea of getting kids to ask questions is so much more important than get, telling kids the answers. I think. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was also just for what he followed that through. I know in his lectures, he would use certain kinds of language. He he would keep it, uh, he would keep it at a sort of understand, I guess in a very kind of, if it may be a particular kind of lecture, it would have got very, very technical. But I know he was very obsessed with, with not making science and also philosophy sort of beyond reach, I suppose. Well, as I say this, the reason I think it's interesting uh, uh, that impact on you is intriguing because the idea of asking questions rather than giving answers seems to me to be some sense characteristic of of a lot of your work. If I think about the movies, and in particular, the idea that you're leading people to to think about things, but not necessarily always resolving it for them. What do you, is that is that appropriate or not? Let me think. I came to science very late. I, I would then. I then ask uh, basic questions like, "What's an atom? Uh, how big's the universe? Is it infinite? Uh, what happened before the universe?" Sure, or sure. And and then you, you come across a bunch of answers, and then a thing happens where it becomes sort of. I think I think the American word is sophomoric mm. to continue asking those questions. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, look, come on, we've got past that. This is like the sort of stoner stuff of people age 19 or 20 at university looking up at the stars going wow man isn't it all so big and 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 then you move past that and you stop asking basic questions of fundamentals of science and fundamentals of philosophy and I never moved past those questions. I always just kept circling and circling and circling them. So so when when you talk about me asking questions it's probably for that reason uh because i keep saying but hang on a minute we, we, this isn't figured out yet i if if it's sophomoric to keep asking it, okay i'm sophomoric but i really haven't figured this out and well you know an internal understanding at least you know no i think that's why i think that's one of the reasons i've always i've been so drawn to you because of course that's what i i mean as a scientist that's what i do for a living right it's just the idea is is that the fundamental questions are of interest and you keep pushing um and keep trying to answer them. Don't go beyond what you what you can learn in some ways, but 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 not mind not knowing, and that's what drives you rather than what, you know. So it's it's the not knowing in some sense that's that 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 keeps you going. Yeah, and there seems to be something like a kind of arrogance to say, yeah, that's juvenile. Yeah. N- n- now we've moved. and you think what the the size of the universe is juvenile yeah. or. or or how it began is are you kidding? But 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 there is a there, there is a sense, and this is not, of course, this is not true for people like you. This is not true of scientists. Completely legitimate to keep mm-hmm. asking these questions, mm-hmm. but but it, but outside that, it's it's somehow seen seen as as not exactly childish, but but sort of just beyond. Well, childish. people are often afraid, it amazes me how people are often afraid to ask questions that are basic questions that everyone has, 
they know they have it, but they kind of feel like they're the only ones that are having it. It's it. I mean, it's the same true about religion. A lot of people question the existence of God, but they're f- afraid to say they do. I, I I think the reason people don't ask those questions is that very quickly after they start asking the questions, they get to death. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They get to their own death. Yeah, and they and think, it, oh Christ, and then they, they, they back. stops everything. Yeah, did was was your. Did your before I leave your grandfather and your youth and get on to the other things a little bit more? Um, did he was he disappointed? Did he encourage you at all? Or, or? He was disappointed. Yeah. yeah, he was disappointed. The, he was he was not just disappointed in me. <laughs> he was, I think he was disappointed in a way in all of his grandchildren. I don't, I don't know if it was a very meaningful disappointment. And I also personally I get the sense that his like like the needle. Of his of his interests and impulses was so, so sort of aimed towards his work that disappointments in that area would be pretty limited. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think he cared that much. But there there was a thing I remember when all the grandchildren were young. We got told, well, it 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 was the first of us to get a medical degree would get the physical object of the Nobel Prize. Oh, and so that was supposed to be an incentive for us to. None, no one, none of you got kept the kept the Nobel Prize. It's your mother's father, right? Or, yeah. And so, but she was she wasn't. Uh, did he was she a scientist in any way or did no? She was a psychoanalyst, and he was uh, in a sort of oppositional position to psychoanalysis yeah. because he he'd have been very firm, well, not very would have been he was uh, very accented towards a sort of psychiatric way of looking at mm. the way mm-hmm. thinking happens it would have been sort of you know uh, electrochemical stuff mm-hmm. rather than Freudian stuff so so you know probably for Freudian reasons that's why she did <laughs> okay now well maybe that's another thing then so she did that and then you you did a degree about as far away from you did a degree in history of art, is that right? Yeah, but I only did a degree in the most sort of glancing forms. I mean, I said like, you know, the, the era in which I was educated, it was, mm-hmm. it was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Back then, university was free mm-hmm. um, uh, and and it, it was quite easy, relatively speaking, to get into university. Yeah. Um, I think everything is much, much harder now. And so I did a degree in history of art, which was a degree that you could stumble into if you'd had a certain kind of bourgeois upbringing, <laughs> which I had, so um, so I stumbled into it, did it, but checked out within like two months or something. Like I said, I I had no academic ability at all, and it, it wasn't till after university that I discovered that retrospectively I might have had. Well, I, you know, that's I think that that's not so unusual, especially since even even for people who were academic like someone like me i've certainly learned more about physics after i got my phd than before i think oh that's interesting and i but i think it's really important that that the if you're alive and human that that learning process continues past school because school is somehow if it that it's best in my opinion school should prepare you for lifelong learning and not not fill you with all the stuff you need to know but but get you teach you how to learn so that later on you can access what you need to know. But. I think with my own kids, I've seen that schools are trying harder to be interesting. Yeah, They, they weren't trying at all. What you'd have is you'd have the odd teacher mm-hmm. yeah, who sure. sort of got that and then would try and light a fire. In, was know, there an English people. teacher for you? I mean, because you became a writer, so yeah, it's, 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 it was in, it's often an English teacher. Isn't yeah, it was it? an English teacher um, uh, when I was 17 who... 
who show who basically taught us Hamlet and showed us that there's stuff going on here behind the words and things that mean a lot to people in general but also the sort of psychology of the characters and I suddenly thought oh I get that like that that makes sense I, I sort of what he's saying I can see it's true and it's also interesting and he was super passionate like rabidly passionate yeah. and so so yeah that 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 struck a chord yeah. did but did you did you decide you wanted to be a writer or did you fall into that no no I fell into it yeah I fell into it I I thought uh, my dad worked in newspapers uh, he was a cartoonist oh okay. and um he was a cartoonist but he knew lots of journalists and so I grew, I really grew up around journalists much more than scientists I mean okay. there's one scientist sure. and lots of journalists yeah. so I I thought maybe I'd be a journalist and um and then journalism or in a, 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 a trying to be a journalist actually led me into writing fiction okay it's interesting so by the way was the fact that your father cartoonist affect your decision to do art or no yeah sure yeah. because because I could draw he taught me how to draw uh-huh. and so uh, I I sort of um, it, that that was the one thing I could do when I was like 15 I couldn't mm. do I, could, mm. I was terrible terrible at sport socially useless just a complete <laughs> completely hopeless but what I could do was draw and and do English and actually drawing in English is sort of what my job is now because yeah. drawing is a bit like storyboards and English is the writing and so that's my that's my job well I okay I was going to ask whether the history of art whether I mean you you describe some to someone I heard you say you describe yourself as a writer more than a director yeah. you think of yourself that way but to move from writer to director requires sort of artistic some artistic sense and and is, did you think your background in art impacted on that yeah I, I I guess so. Yeah, sure. Um, it, it wouldn't have been anything to do with my degree because, like yeah. I said, I basically you checked just, out of it. But mm-hmm. um, uh, it, it would have been to do with my dad, yeah. And it did, yes, it had an impact. It partly has an impact because sometimes when one's talking about, say, a visual effect shot mm-hmm. that you can't show because yeah. there's nothing there, there's, say, a green screen or yeah. something, you can sketch out what the frame will look like and that gives people a touchstone for how it will all fit together. Okay, well, and that's become presumably progressively more important in your life as a director um, is the need to do that and as you reach, and presumably A, as you reach, and B, as you have the funds to to to, to utilize more. I, yeah, I guess so. I mean, actually, um, visual effects exist much more in a way than people think because they're employed in invisible ways the whole time but mm-hmm. but yeah sure sure i mean it, it's been it has definitely been very useful it means that with like the people uh say this guy i work with andrew whitehurst who's the visual effects supervisor mm-hmm. both of us draw and we can often we often find it easiest to communicate with each other by having a sharpie and two bits of paper and just scribbling stuff but it's collaborative totally which, yeah, totally. which, by the way, much like science, people tend to think science isn't, but it's really collaborative and people playing back and forth. Okay. I think it's very like science in one respect, which is that I've often been aware. Actually, one of the things my grandfather said is he said, you can get anything you want done as long as you don't mind someone else getting the credit. And 
the, and one of the things in the science world and also in the film world is there's a lot of people who are very skilled at doing kind of land grabs of credit. Yeah, yeah. You know, so so yes, it's collaborative, but it often isn't presented that way. And I think it's because in both both worlds, it's much easier for people to get their head around. Uh, in science, it would be like to get their head around the idea of a genius. Uh -huh. um, uh, that that makes it sort of apprehendable or explainable. Mm -hmm. But if what you really say is there's a large team of people, I, I, I saw that reflected recently on a very very brilliant television program called Chernobyl, which was a, oh yeah, I love that program. It was, it was great. spectacular. But one of the things they did was conflate many characters into into one, one. yeah, because because you can get the story if it's one person fighting through it. But and and film does that with directors. It all sort of focuses attention on the director at the expense of all the people that are really uh, making the film. Um, so yes, collaborative. Yeah, Some and, and, and it's real important for people to realize that because, and especially, I think Einstein spoiled it for everyone because everyone thinks that science is done by you know people in, in there. They have insights at late at night in their room thinking alone. It's just it's just not done that way. It's not. I don't know of any no, intellectual was, pursuit or many intellectual pursuits that aren't collaborative. It, it must have been a bit like that with him. I mean, I, that is to say, him or Newton or Galileo, or well, whoever you want to go to, they're involved in conversations, but there are with those people. I mean, in a way, they're they're yeah. the true exceptions. Well, Newton was Newton wasn't human. He was from the Shimmer or something. Right, but, right. but Newton was 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 uh, yeah, yeah. I think a unique character, and he would have been in a an insane asylum now. I think if he if he if he'd been born now. Why? He was just a t he was he he was he was basically insane. I mean, he really. I mean, most of his time was spent interpreting the Bible, believing that God was telling him special messages. He sort of did science on the side. It was just off scale brilliant, and. And also, there are a few people, with, with Einstein, for example, if you're a scientist, you could, you could say, well, if I knew, he asked the right questions, but if I asked those questions, I could see how to get from here to there. Newton and a few other rare individuals, you just don't know. It just comes Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, I get, yeah, I understand that. Yes, so my point of empathy there would be Shakespeare, who yeah. is inexplicable. Yes, he, he's just inexplicable. It, it, you can see the words are there, so someone's actually done it, but yeah. you have no idea how they got there. Exactly, that's a great analogy. Yeah, yeah, and it's, uh, but it, it's, it's. I know you've described you know, making. Um, I, I heard you said, which struck me as an interesting way of using the word the collaborative. You talked about making movies, and you called about the, the collaborative. collaborative, the collective. Yeah, like the like the the Borg. <laughs> in in right. <laughs> when we use that word, I thought, okay, benign, well, probably. but presumably they're not they're not all assimilated. They're they everyone contributes their own. No, it, it, I mean it in a more kind of hippie way. Yeah, sure. You know that sort of collective. Um, it 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 just is. It just seems to me like a statement of fact, and yeah. um, uh, and I'm working. I'm working typically with people who I've worked with for a very long time, sometimes yeah. twenty years. That's so, great. Yeah, well, that's good. That means it it works, right? I mean, that's works. the point. Yeah, I think so. Now let's go. Let's talk. I want to talk about even well to beach to some extent, but it's sort of the fantasy world, or at least the fiction world. Science fiction clearly plays a, a key role in a lot of your work. And I was really pleased to see that, I think 28 Days, you, you said we were influenced by one of my favorite books. One of my, my favorite science fiction writers was John Wyndham. Mm -hmm. yep. Did you read a lot of science fiction? I read John Wyndham. Mm. Well, then um, that's all you have to read as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah. I read, I read uh, yes, I did. I did read a lot of sci-fi. Um, uh, 
Uh, it was John Wyndham and J.G. Ballard, and in a way, George Orwell, which is a sort of science fiction. Yeah, sure, sometimes. a sort of. Yeah. I think 1984 sort of counts. Kind yeah, of. I agree. Yeah, I think so. Aldous Huxley, I guess that science fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yes. And well, did it? You know, and and I think this is what I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that the sense I get from the films is the same idea. Um, Stephen Hawking wrote the foreword for one of my books, The Physics of Star Trek, and he said science fiction, you know, we're relating science fiction and science, and, and the idea is that science fiction serves an important purpose. It inspires human imagination. It inspires you to think about the kind of questions that if you thought were science questions, you might be intimidated to think about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, often, as I, I, I wrote that book because people are often afraid to talk about physics concepts, but if you put them in the context of Star Trek, time travel or whatever, then people get excited. Do, do you think that that those questions that started to interest you when you were 20, science fiction was a great medium because it, not just for you, but be, if you want to communicate to people and you decided to do a science documentary, you wouldn't reach as many people as if you were to do a fiction book. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, I mean, I mean, yes, but but I think actually I feel my motivation came out of neuroses in some respects that I always felt I went through I went from a funny kind of transition from thinking I was thick to thinking I wasn't thick uh-huh. so uh, and then feeling always like several steps behind other people I'd meet so they would have gone to a great university mm-hmm. like Oxford or Cambridge mm-hmm. and 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 you could sort of feel their intellect and intelligence <laughs> sort of radiating off them and so in in some ways I'd be trying to I, I always and still feel I still very much feel like I'm trying to catch up and then the stories are the act of me catching up so uh, I will I'll get very very interested in say uh, in Ex Machina, it was mm. it was sentience and machine learning and uh, issues to do with gender, and um, so in my sort of obsessive reading and trying to get my head around it as much as possible, a, a story which is like an illustration of that attempt to understand it then floats out of it, and and also even even in the very early days, there's a there's a conversation in the beach. I sort of remembered this dimly the other day and then went back and looked at it so I wrote that when I was 24 mm-hmm. there's a conversation in it which is um, which is essentially about that if, uh, and I always worry particularly if I'm talking to a scientist I'll get these terms wrong but the sort of the, the, the quilted multiverse mm-hmm. version mm-hmm. where it's infinity that starts to create mm-hmm. repeating you know mm-hmm. universes yes we'll get to the multiverse I think sure. I wanted to, I know well I think it's relevant to the new projects yeah absolutely it is yeah and and so so i can see myself age 24 get trying to get my head around the idea well hang on if 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 space and matter are infinite then inevitably you will get ex- precise repetitions and sure. also variations on precise repetitions a number of the same and infinite number yeah. slightly different yeah. infinity is a wonderful thing you can do a lot with it so but 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 it's not well, quite, but yeah. but it, it's not motivated by me trying to provoke questions mm-hmm. in other people. It's it's more me trying to figure it out, and then my means, for whatever reason, my means of 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 then sort of processing that becomes writing a story. Well, you know, again, I don't, I don't, 
I, I, I don't think it's a, that's different. People tend to think, even the scientists that are trying to save the world or whatever, cr- people can't do hard work unless they're really doing it for themselves. I think ultimately, in the, I mean, other, yeah, in terms of creative work, anyway, the 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 notion that you're really writing for yourself or it's 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 very self-involved when you're doing science, at least from my experience, and almost all the scientists I know, you're trying to. It's something you're interested in, you want to do for yourself, you want to figure it out. And, and I guess I find similar things. When I write books, it's, hey, I want to, y- sure, there's a topic I want to deal with, but this gives me an opportunity to to think about it in a way that I just wouldn't have been able to spend time doing. Mm-hmm. And the, and if you're not, and, and it's like a teacher too, if you're not passionately interested in yourself, I don't think you're going to, that's going to relate it's going to be successful for yeah, other people. Yeah, if you're people. bored of your job, the kids will be sure as Yeah, well. and then if you're not fast, if, you, if you're writing the, if you're making a movie or writing a book or whatever, unless you're passionately interested in it, I don't think that passion is going to go out to, to the rest of the world. But but the, it is interesting to me that you, one could go in a lot of different directions to understand the world, but generally, um, not completely, most of your films are science fiction related or at least... Fantasy related, even from yeah, but, twenty-eight well, they, days. The science, well, right? No, yeah. I, I, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, you go. <laughs> I mean, they're not. They're not necessarily. They use science as a starting point at some level, or science fiction. Either science or or something uh, sort of philosophical. Ph- yeah, ph- yeah, ph- one ph- or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I have to ask you this question: the the film Sunshine. Yeah. You read a you read an article about what the far future of the universe that got you interested. I think I was trying to understand entropy. Entropy. Yeah. And the heat, the heat death of the universe. Basically, yeah. Do you remember what the article was? It was from Scientific American. I just wondered, because uh, I wrote a bunch of articles in Scientific American. Maybe it was you. Yeah. <laughs> just it on the far future of the universe. It's, sure. it's interesting. Yeah. Well, th- this this is exactly how it works. So here I am uh, as, as a lay person. Mm-hmm. And then you come across an idea like uh, velocity and speed are related mm-hmm. to each other. Yeah. You think, well, what you, you know? Are you kidding? And try, try and figure it out. And w- one of the ones I remember when I came across the idea, it was a real kind of bolt from the blue. It really made me sit up and and reappraise all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things science can do. If yeah. you open up to it, it has huge philosophical implications. And and one of them was to do with heat death. It, mm. That that it in a way it didn't really matter what you did or what advances you made or if you managed to find a way of crossing these staggeringly big distances mm-hmm. in space which is one of the most basic things that is most commonly misunderstood yeah i think it's just how big this thing is sure and how hard it is and how long it takes to get around it you know um but then thinking okay well let's say we you know we get a let's say we figure out wormholes they actually yeah. exist and you can bump across to the other side of the universe not really going to help you in in the it means you get to see more places before you inevitably die so 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 it that that yeah that really hit me hard and the the idea of sunshine which i i think i sort of regret i think it sort of got lost in the end was was a sort of philosophical position which is there's a the earth's going to die some people go to save the earth by going to the sun yeah it's completely spurious kickstarted yeah. with a massive bomb makes no sense at all but the earth's going to die some people are going to try and save it and someone who's previously 
been on a mission to do this, then tries to stop them. Mm-hmm. And the reason he tries to stop them is because he makes an argument, which is if we save Earth now, all we're doing is putting off this imminent horror of extinction to our great, 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 great squared or whatever you want, grandchildren. And that's an act of cowardice. We're, we're just handing on oh, existential horror <laughs> to, to our children's children's children. And that's that's ethically mm. sort of unsound and we should face this horror and I, I thought that was quite an interesting idea and partly an interesting idea because I think it might actually be true <laughs> I think it <laughs> might be true I mean that's not to say I think we should let global warming yeah I was going to say you could say yeah, exactly. we, yeah, we're sure. already making it miserable for our children we, yeah sure but, but it, it's more just like it's an interesting question to sort of wrestle with i suppose oh yeah well i mean i often say the you know the future is miserable and and one and uh and it's going to end badly but but on the other hand um we have the present and yeah. uh and it, i by the way maybe i can help you here i wrote a book about an atom and the good thing about regardless of how it ends yeah. whether the sun eats the earth or whether we destroy ourselves mm-hmm. for our atoms It'll, the future is going to be almost identical. Yeah. I, doesn't I, matter whether part of us, but they're going to be in the same part of the cosmos, whether the sure, atmosphere is blown off. Sure. Maybe that doesn't help. I, it, it doesn't because because <laughs> I don't ascribe huge amounts of uh, meaning to <laughs> atoms. Good in, in and of themselves. Yeah, too many people. The do. emergent property of the atoms, yeah. great. Yeah, the atoms themselves. Okay, they can keep going as long as they like. But but okay. Well, uh, now in that <laughs> okay, there was another aspect. That's fascinating for me to learn about sunshine because I was trying to. I, I I read that you sort of it was that that heat death that went to sunshine. I couldn't quite see the connection, and you just made it for me, which is really good. Now I understand a little bit better. But there was something That's else. That's a failure that, of the film. Essentially, it's a failure of the film. The film, in that respect, definitely failed, and um, it actually was a wake up call for me to to start um, working a bit harder. Ah, but one thing that that. Uh, and I was talking to my crew here, who, 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 who about sunshine, and and they were saying that they liked various aspects. But I, I, I one thing I f- think that is interesting is the try attempt to capture what it's like to be a, a scientist on such a mission. That that I think is, and uh, did you uh, work hard on that, or did that just come out? And the idea no, of that, that, that's the problem is I didn't work hard on it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I. I, there's lots of things I really love about Sunshine, but there's lots of things I think are lazy. And I think I got more rigorous following Sunshine. Uh, um, if I was doing it again now, uh, I would approach it um, with with more research. Okay. Okay, no, that's... Uh, well, and okay, now actually that allows me to move to, I mean... The, the the film that I get I don't know whether it's fair to say breakout film but the first directing experience in Ex Machina which was a huge success and and from my point of view which first introduced me to you I, that's the way I first and and that which is a fascinating film you did a lot more research right you you were interested in neuroscience thinking about the issue yeah. of I, I, I there's a um there, there's a friend who actually in the last couple of years has has descended into um uh dementia but oh. For for a lot for for twenty years or so, he was someone who, who I could talk to uh, about these things, and we had a long running uh, argument, I suppose, about uh, what, is, is, where consciousness, 
was seated mm -hmm. so he knew a lot about this because he had a huge interest in neurology yeah. and and i knew very little but in talking with him i learned more and more and out of those conversations i then so so i i had almost well probably it was around about 10 years we probably were talking about it and that that's proper research he knew his stuff i didn't but in testing my arguments out against him it would lead me to learn other things and and by the end of it i felt unlike sunshine i now have enough of a grasp of this subject to be able to meaningfully write about it I suppose. well yeah no i think it was i mean it's it robots are not an untested territory in films but i thought in terms of exploring key issues having to do with artificial intelligence that that film was was groundbreaking in many ways, and it, for one reason in particular, which uh, which I got from the movie, but then I, I must admit I, I think I read you saying it too. But which is to think of things from the perspective of the AI rather than from perspective of the person interacting with the AI. So it's it's it, you know instead of a human interpreting what's going on and sort of trying to see how the AI is reacting to the world, which I think is, from my mind, the most interesting aspect of artificial intelligence. Was that, was that an intentional aspect of... Yeah, definitely. I, I think one of the one of the things I kept running into, and I, I, in a way I think this is not exactly told explicitly, but it's sort of more uh, more as allegory or may, maybe, but, but just that there's there's no way you can reasonably assume that a self-aware machine would have a consciousness that was like our consciousness um and there's also no way that one would be able in talking to the, that machine to really be able to understand what its sense of its own consciousness would be like so so it was it was that kind of thing i guess yeah but an interesting question do you think you get us is it just an assumption when you're talking to another person that you have a sense well, of their is. consciousness? Well, it is that 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 ultimately was was one of the thrusts of it, which is that actually we're we're doing a kind of rolling Turing test on everybody yeah. we encounter, and and you and I are making assumptions about each other's consciousness mm -hmm. that are not not based on actual knowledge at all. In fact, there is there is no actual knowledge, or almost no actual knowledge, that we can sort of ascertain about the the experiential side of our own consciousness yeah. you know so um uh, yeah that, that that was definitely part of it but that then also was able to uh to to sort of include things like gender for mm -hmm. example so one can talk about consciousness one can talk about something which is even perceived as being as fundamental as gender and then you can figure out is consciousness a sense of consciousness and gender something that is conferred on someone else by the way they look or behave or is it actually contained within them and uh and it, i mean so it goes on it, it it's to do it's to do with this funny air gap this yeah. vacuum gap mm -hmm. that exists between us yeah. and the ways we try and bridge it intuitively i suppose absolutely and it's and i think and that's a fascinating way of putting it because The, I, I think we know very, very little about consciousness. I've often, someone pointed out to me that the more, when we understand a subject, there are not many books on it. You know, mm -hmm. quantum mechanics, you only need one. But consciousness, there are a zillion books because we don't really understand it very well. I think that 
And I think Feynman talked about understanding quantum mechanics better by building a quantum computer. But yeah, I my assumption is that if the more we try and direct artificial intelligence, and I actually ran a meeting with some neuroscientists and some computer scientists, the more we try and think about that, the more that will tell us about our own consciousness. By, by potentially developing a consciousness, if that is ever possible, yeah. that is, and seeing what it's like, it will teach us about the varieties of consciousness, if that's possible. Yeah, you'd, if, if you only have one, a sample of one, you don't know very much. Yeah, you'd think so. That, 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 that would appear to make sense as a sort of progression. Um, uh, it's just, I, I wish actually the guy I used to talk to was here. I know what he'd say is he'd say, maybe not yeah. because because what he would say is that there's something so big and so fundamental we don't yet understand about consciousness that at the point we understand it it will render a lot of these other thought processes completely redundant and um uh, and i i i know what he means i think i often get a sense of something like that with science is that there are some really really very big things that we're not getting and I hope so. That's why I continue to do it. But, but, yeah. but there, there are but the, often the, principles. The question is the extent to which the big things and the things we do have correlate. Yeah. Which, which, which depending on the scale of the big thing, they may or may not. I suppose. Yeah. And whether there, whether you have the freedom that you think you have. Uh, for example, I've debated with a lot of people. Well, sure, that I'm, I'm reasonably certain there's lots of life in the universe. Yeah. And the, qu the interesting question to me. And that's why it's so important to look for it, just like thinking of machine consciousness, is that we have a sample of one here on yeah. Earth. And the question is, would life be similar or not elsewhere? And I don't mean just whether they look like humans. I mean, would it be based on the same chemistry? Is there a unique solution? Are there print chemical principles that life explored this whole channel? Will there be four base pairs? Will they be the same? People are, and, and I've actually... The more I've tried to learn about that, I kind of think there may be some principle. It may be very similar, although a lot of my colleagues completely disagree. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, but that both are very reasonable arguments. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That, that that's the nature of the thing. Actually, the film I did after Ex Machina: Annihilation was was an attempt to look at that to an extent. At any yeah, rate, because I, I was thinking a, a bit like the way an AI consciousness, if you got a truly self-aware machine, mm -hmm. would not really be like our consciousness mm -hmm. very much at all, or very possibly wouldn't yeah. be. I thought we, we often ascribe to aliens things that are really very human. Now that could be carbon-based, yeah. but very often it's to do with their intentions. Yeah. They want to eat us, enslave us, teach us about galactic federations, yeah. uh, un unravel you know the answers of the universe or whatever it is but all of these are very human preoccupations and you could easily have an alien that not only did not have human preoccupations but but had no that there was no conceptual way we could understand even the idea of preoccupations mm. with regard to that thing and conversely it would not really be able to meaningfully interact with us because we were just simply so different from each other i mean i it, i I mean, I'm I'm so constantly in the danger of sounding like a bullshitter about these things, but <laughs> it, it makes me think about octopuses and uh -huh. and the, the the way. Yeah. I mean, in a way that that would support what you're saying because you have these two very different evolutionary uh, lines mm -hmm. that end up with things that are actually able to interact with each other um, and do have all sorts of commonalities despite being so very different. Yeah, I well, it's hard to know. I mean, the 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 great thing the the wonderful thing about evolution is that 
is it you explore a lot of channels and the ones that work are successful and the question i guess is always are there many different channels that can be equally successful it's interesting in what, evolution what there are mean? many independent you know on in in africa and south america there're independence identical solutions to the same problem evolutionary ones you can ask a question i i was yeah i i am uh, I, I'm sure, you know, I, like intuitively, I'm sure you're right. What you said about alien life and uh, it, it specifically to do with it existing somewhere. Mm. Yeah. Um, but uh, what, what's your, where, why do you think there's this silence? I think it, well, part of it is you got is what you said before. It's very very big, and and I was by the way, but I was thinking about it often. That's not explained in science fiction. I was thinking of Douglas Adams and mm -hmm. at the beginning of uh, what I, I love that book because he talks about how big space is compared mm -hmm. to going to the chemist. But I think it's just well, there are two. It's really a big universe, and we haven't been around very long. And and it's it's actually not so easy to know how the communication channels would take place. I actually wrote a lot about this in in in, in the physics of Star Trek and another book I wrote after that. Also, people say well. You know, sufficiently advanced civilization. We've we, the universe is 13 billion years old, and we're only four and a half billion years old here on Earth. There could be civilizations that began billions and billions of years earlier. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's the there's the key question: Does intelligence survive very long? Um, is it a 10,000 year, 100,000 year process of uh, before it destroys itself? That's one question. Yeah, I don't, the, I don't see how how you could possibly quantify that. But yeah, you can't quantify that. But there's 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 also the question of well, how, if you're trying to listen, what are you listening for? There's so many different yeah, things sure. to listen for. And then there's another thing I think that is even more, maybe more relevant to what you're talking about, which is that, well, actually, there's one physical thing I haven't, I don't think I've ever written about, but it could be that life has to have been recent. The chem, as I've often said, the atoms that make you and I up required lots of stars mm -hmm. to process material. Sure. So you couldn't have had complex, you know, carbon systems really early on in the history of the universe. Yeah. And it may be a relatively recent phenomenon. That, and of course, you require very special conditions. Yeah. But beyond that, let's say there were really, uh, really um, advanced civilizations. Would would they have any desire or need? to try and communicate with us. But also, how would they find us? Well, like, they exactly. They wouldn't know we're here, but would they even care? Yeah. No, the, yeah, I guess that. I, I guess that's what I would imagine to be right. I mean, that is to say, in some ways, it's actually pretty early. We could be quite early. Yeah, we, we could yeah. be among the earliest. And, and if we're not, we could just be of no great interest. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yes. Anyway, that actually, that, and this is exactly the kind of sophomoric stuff yeah. that I can't get away from. Yeah, well, no, but, yeah. the, but I think... I think the, when you when you have a successful anything, it's because you're tapping into something. Every I think many people have those questions. They're they're turned off from asking them. But we all ask. I think everyone who looks up at the universe has asked: Are we alone? Why are we alone? Why, you know, what's going to happen to the in the future? What where did we come from? Those are universal questions. And at some level, that's what's so nice to me about connecting science with culture. And that's one of the things that's great about the kind of films you make is that you're asking the same questions. And the impact is exactly the same. You said your view of the of the world changed when you realized that might heat death might be there. In my, if I define what I think the goal of science is, it's the same as the goal of art, which is to change our perspective of our place in the cosmos, mm -hmm. where we come from, where we're going, and and one can do that in a lot of ways. One can do that in science, or one can do it by artistically, by by 
literature, fiction, or movies, which is to provoke people to think about those things, which is the most fun thing we can do as the humans, I think. But yeah. anyway, uh, let me let me we'll get to annihilation, and then I want to get to the new project too. But the AI, I want to get there. You didn't. The question was an interesting philosophical question that you asked, which is, and the gender aspect is kind of fascinating too. It hadn't hit me until you just said that. But um, you'd, one ignores, of course, the how we get from here to there. And um, and it's interesting to me to think that there may be... Did you think about that or you just said, well, that's not a question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume we've gotten there. I'm not going to worry about how we've gotten there because that's too... There are a lot of daunting questions about whether we can even never get there. Yeah, sure. I, I think that um, the, the way in which science fiction works is that it assumes a bunch of uh, precepts and yeah. it doesn't worry about how we got there. Mm-hmm. We we have a spaceship that can go near yeah, at the sure. speed of light. Yeah, that's sure, yeah. just that's, what we managed yeah. to do. Because you need it for the plot conceit. Yeah, that's plot. fine. I'm fine with that. Y- yeah, you, y- so um, uh, I didn't... No, I didn't think too much about it except to think that a good way to to give a machine data about how to communicate with humans would involve the kind of a massive accumulation of data that you get Mm -hmm. from search engines and the internet um and uh but past that i didn't i didn't really think about it too hard i i mean well i don't know There, there were thought processes but they're so kind of banal and yeah and so i don't feel like they're worth repeating but um uh no i was more interested in the sort of step past that Mm -hmm. and in particular i was also thinking really ex machina is much more about the nature of just consciousness in general than Mm -hmm. it is specifically about machine consciousness okay well you know because the more i think about how you might do it the more obvious it is is to me that it would be different i was shocked just talking to the writer ian McCune, who's written a book about robots too about the same question because we would if you when i've talked to ai people and they say well we really have to input human values into this it's worry worrisome but and they say what are human values and and you'd you'd assign it the kind of ability to assess things logically and probabilistically that humans don't use but you'd want to put it in there risk management what what the likelihood because it would have all this data it would be able to you'd think it would be able to make a rational decision but we are mm. the slaves of passion yeah and, the, the the big difference i do think with a machine is that you can put an enforced parameter into it which you can't do with humans well i don't know i mean evolution may have put enforced parameters into into the into into us and, uh, it, it can put in some enforced parameters but i'm i'm talking about much vaguer social mm, ones such uh-huh. as we attempt to put a parameter in which is don't murder people uh-huh, yeah lots of people do murder exactly people. but you could actually with a machine say you cannot murder people there would be ways of doing that you think so if it was yeah. even if it was yes i do so 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 there's not volition in, a, in an AI in the same sense of, uh, I mean, uh, the question no, of free will is I, always a big one in humans, but also in a, in a sufficiently intelligent, self-aware machine. Would the machine override any instructions just like children do from their parents? But, but you can make it so that the machine cannot override it in the same way as you could 
make it that a human cannot override the metal box that it's been put in. Yeah. Unless it's self-programmable, which I assume. But even if it's, it, even then, you you could have things that it would not be able to overcome. I mean, they, it, they, they, they're not gods. Mm -hmm. they, they, they don't have an infinite power available to them. You can, you yeah. can, of course, they, they, of course, if you intentionally choose to do it. That now you could retrospectively say, "Hang on, this machine's got a bit too powerful. I'm going to try and curb its power and then fail." Well, it, yeah, I mean, but the question is, but there's no universals for you. Thou shalt, you, you, thou shalt not murder. You don't murder. But of course, you you have to murder if you're an intelligent machine driving a car, and you have a choice. Sure, between the, the yeah, the it's the same, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, all of that. You have to murder, and so you have to at some level. It's hard to find universals. The more I think about it, but maybe no, it it, it is. But I'm talking about different kinds yeah. of universals. Uh -huh. So so if you're saying I want to curtail the power of this machine, uh -huh. one thing you could do which we have a version of, and you could give a more extreme version to the machine, is say, after a year, you will switch yourself off. Mm -hmm. Or, not you will switch yourself off, something else. A, a machine that has no sentience, it's just simply pressing a button after 12 months, mm -hmm. it switches it off. So, it's very within our ability to curtail these things, if we have the intention to do that, which we might not, but that's a different question. Yeah, it's interesting, and, and actually, you reminded me in, the, in this book by machines like me, where the it's exactly put in there that there's a switch off button and the and the robot the machine basically ensures that that doesn't work eventually well i th i think that's the speculation yeah, of we course. always make which is what if what if this is too powerful and we can't switch it off mm -hmm. but but given that man's figured out yeah. some pretty complex things in the oh, yeah. past that, i think people not... you're right i think what you're getting at is really interesting which is that we sh people are afraid of yeah. this you know the terminator and the, and all but Sky in fact it, it's First of all, we're so far away, mm. but also we, it's easy to imagine supreme beings. It's harder to create them. We, we routinely deal with much more serious existential problems than that. that yeah, that's what I said. Exactly. Okay. And okay, now speaking of the parameters, I want to move to annihilation at some level, which, by the way, well, I was surprised you said it was based on self destruction. I was reading it somewhere or listening to something yeah. you said. Um, why don't you talk about that for a second? But I want to also get to the parameters. That that that's very that's just very simple. Which mm. is that um, uh, I had sort of noticed. I think that um, uh, everybody I would encounter, including myself, once I got to know them sufficiently well, would turn out to have some very very uh, irrational, self-destructive impulses. Sure. And 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 I think that um, uh, people often present that very differently. So. Uh, uh, someone you know who's a heroin addict is sort of offering up their yeah. apparent self-destruction to you and other people seem incredibly sort of bulletproof in their self-confidence and assertiveness and the way they, they swim through the world yeah. but actually get to know them and you suddenly discover these weird sort of you know dark matter yeah. sort of counterpoints to um, uh, the sort of bright glowing radiant being that you feel you're encountering and and so uh so i i just started thinking why are we all self-destructive and my the the sort of the feeling i got to is that it was something to do with mortality it was something to do with death that that whatever we're doing whatever path we're taking through life we do have this background thing which is we're going to die and it's not something we're going to do to ourselves typically mm-hmm um, it's something that is going to be done to us. And so it's like we grab a little bit of that destruction of the self and own it 
in some unconscious way. So that that was the principle. That that plus strange aliens was annihilation. Yeah, yeah. Well, and more than just strange aliens, I want to get to that strangeness of annihilation, which is very strange. And remember, you were I first our first conversation. You were in the process of making it, and yeah. and you emphasized how strange it was going to be to me. So it was fun for me to go to watch it. But um, um, the uh, getting the self-destructiveness, I, I can ask. I think I, I certainly agree with you in many ways. It's this insecurity, and I and I've often wondered whether the more successful I've, in myself, the more self-doubt you have, the more success you have in some level because of of the question of whether the whether you're fooling everyone else. I, don't I doubt know. that. Yeah. I, I I doubt that because I think you'll find lots of unsuccessful people with a lot of self-doubt and yeah. lots of successful people with very little but mm. i thought the self-destructive thing was pretty universal yeah, pretty useful. yeah okay well now there's self-destruction and strange aliens but there's more than strange aliens it's strange laws of physics i mean it's yeah. i mean that speaking of of being constrained by by the parameters of the universe in that region your time but it's as far as i can see it's everything and, and that's open and and I w- wanted you to riff on that a little bit. I, I, it's exactly what you just said. I think that um, uh, I think Ex Machina is quite a rigorous film, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so it's bound by its own desire to be rigorous. Mm-hmm. And uh, with Annihilation, I wanted it to be more um, intuitive and hallucinogenic. Maybe the hallucinogenic comes from it being intuitive, mm-hmm. but there is this other whole side of our thinking. Um, which is does not have any rigor in it. It's it's much more compulsive and helpless. And um, uh, I think annihilation is is a is a kind of well, I suppose literally in a way a manifestation of that. Okay. Did you was it much more difficult to, or maybe was it easier for you to to just sort of open that up? Then I mean, fucking hard. Yeah, I was wondering. I mean, if you're constrained, it's in some ways it's easier than if you open up the. Well, it's testable. Yeah. Um, so I could, uh, I could in, in the thing I'm doing at the moment and in Ex Machina, I could literally contact people and and test things. Mm-hmm. So I could say, is this a fair representation of, uh, you know, Mary in the black and white room? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. As a thought experiment, yeah, yeah. is this a good representation of that thought experiment? And then they could say yes or no. And uh, annihilation was not testable in that way. I, I actually heard you say somewhere that I really liked the fact that you were impressed with the eye of a fact, and we, we, I've actually had a dialogue with a, with a, with um, Elizabeth Loftus, who's who's a psychologist who who has testified about how bad eyewitnesses are. Yeah. But the idea that empirical evidence is so much better than memory or or eyewitnesses, I was really impressed that that, that you talked about how impactful that was for you. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's uh, it, it, that. I suppose that's yes. That's the annihilation bit. Um, uh, what was it? The, the the one I think of is is like cops talking about how useless witnesses are. Yeah, the, yeah. you know, one person says they had a knife, another one says they had a gun. Shot four times, mm. stabbed three. Yeah, that and and um, there, there's there's also actually if you go to empirical evidence, there's lots of evidence that. Um, uh, you, you know, I mean, what am I? You know, and probably everyone who's watching this knows that the sort of the way in which the brain is really making its best guess 
about the information that arrives at the optic nerve, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and um, can easily be tricked into making a wrong best guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so, so that that strange jump, I suppose, the uh, annihilation existed past the optic nerve. You know, mm-hmm. it was in the best worst guess territory. Okay, speaking of best and worst guess, uh, something we have no intuitive way of guessing is quantum mechanics. And I, and and I, I, I don't know a lot about the new series that, that you're developing, uh, but I remember you telling me it had it had something to do with quantum mechanics. So I, you want to talk about it a little bit, or and and do you want to ask me any questions about it? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I I would have had tons of questions. Now I worried to ask the questions in case I get <laughs> answers that <laughs> contradict what I've just done. Um, um, it, it, so it began, uh, it, it, it began with uh, sort of concerns, by which I mean literally a sense of concern about determinism and the, the sort of implications of determinism and uh, the, 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 most, the, the most immediately impactful for us is free will, mm-hmm. really. And um, and then so I then began to read about it and try to understand it and sort of encounter what various philosophers and scientists have talked about. In a way, it very quickly gets you to quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, which I yeah mm-hmm. yeah it it, it does a lot it, of people. It's the out. All the people who worry about Newtonian clocks governing the world, they say, oh, but we have quantum mechanics and that's the out for free will. I don't think it is, by the I, way. I, well, it look it, it may or may not be, but. But it doesn't seem obviously an out to me. I think yeah. it has problems, which is, say, quantum mechanics is probabilistic, and so fine. Mm-hmm. But that that doesn't actually mean that the probabilistic thing involves a decision. It's probabilistic. Mm-hmm. So, so in a way, you have something making a decision about the driving of the car that you're not controlling because mm-hmm. it's happening within a probabilistic space that doesn't you don't you don't derive free will from that oh, you, yeah so. and more it's even worse actually and uh, that quantum mechanics is is deterministic it's a, it's based on mathematically what's called a second order differential equation you given the initial conditions of the of the what's called the wave function and everything yeah. is free. it's what the measurements are probabilistic but the underlying laws that are governing what's evolving is completely deterministic well right mm-hmm. so uh, so, so that's exactly the kind of argument I'd encounter. So, so, so then you start asking two questions, I suppose. One is, what are the implications of uh, no free will for us? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is, if if you live in a in a deterministic mm-hmm. sort of in a deterministic universe without all the other caveats if you if you live in a deterministic universe what does that allow us to do in terms of predicting behavior and understanding what behavior must have preceded the state that we're in so the degree to look forwards and the degree to look backwards um from uh from any given set of circumstances so okay, well, that we've sort of discussed this very philosophically. Uh, yeah. Do you want to talk about the context in which it's Im- implemented? So this is an, a series, unlike a movie, right? It's yeah, a, it's a it's a it's series, eight part television series, eight, eight part television series, yeah. and it's called Devs. It's about uh, a development division within a company. Well, we were talking earlier about you, you, you know one takes a conceit and yeah. says this is the conceit. So so the conceit here is that. Uh, 
quantum supremacy in terms of quantum computers has been achieved mm -hmm. some time ago and now we're in the world of really spectacularly powerful quantum computers which aren't running 53 or 100 qubits they're running you know thousands uh, yeah gigabytes okay or more yeah okay you know so more actually so um uh and and then the ability of a machine like that to deal with spectacularly large data mm -hmm. so so we could make a very good uh uh prediction about where the earth will be in relation to the sun in 73 years and 10 days and seven minutes or, or you know or, or whatever you want it to be um because we understand a lot about the mass of the sun and the mass of the earth and the orbits and the way gravity works and so on and so we can make a good prediction but what if you hugely enlarged those kinds of parameters um uh so so it is a mixture of uh, what happens if we don't have free will mm -hmm. and what happens if we are able to predict and backwardly understand the state of not having free will? Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I'm wondering if it's, you know, one of the arguments that I often give for what the world appears, it looks like we have free will because it's just so complicated that that you can't, that, that, that it is deterministic at a base, basic level and so many things are happening that you can't predict what's what easily what's going what decision you're going to make but i guess what i'm trying to understand is you, if, are you saying that the system can actually f know that the 10 to the 23 particles that are yeah. in this room and work out what's yeah. going to happen at a precisely yeah uh, yeah and the it, the the thing you said about it looks like we have free will because things are so complicated i i guess that's right um i i, I think more like we have it, it's not like we arrive at the sense we have free will by a sort of step of rational thoughts that says I can see how complicated the world is. Yeah. You know, therefore I have free will. Yeah, no. It's more just we have a very strong intuitive sense that we have free will. But at the same time, we have also intuitive senses, I think, that we don't have free will. So um, uh, if, if a friend of yours had been stabbed in a mugging, it wouldn't be hard, it might be difficult with a friend, but it wouldn't be hard for me to persuade you that the person that did the stabbing had come from a background, they were a junkie, their parents were junkies, they were hooked on crack by the time they were 12, that, and that they didn't wake up that morning thinking, I intend to do something bad and stab, but they are essentially a victim or a consequence of circumstances. That's a very easy way we can... Yes we can intuitively understand that that person didn't really have much free will or or maybe any and so so that it, it it's it's a funny kind of mixed state we're in with regard to free will yes um, and, and cause and effect we we've, we intuitively are very bound to cause and effect and usually whenever i'm having this conversation or i'm testing it out i suppose what i the question if we go back to questions that i tend to ask is can you give me an example of something that that is completely spontaneous and random and and doesn't belong to some prior state in some way or another and if if the answer is that's very difficult to do or i can't do it 
then that does lead you very quickly towards a lack of free will. And you, but, but this could be to do with me not understanding sufficiently well the arguments, but it seems to me that the arguments that then try to reintroduce free will get quite tortured. Oh, yeah, I, of, I think so. I, I, I think that my, my own way of saying this is that we live, there is no free will. There is a, the world is deterministic, but but for all intents and purposes, we appear to live in a world that's indistinguishable one from one that has free will. And there is no doubt reasons why I do virtually everything I do. But then the question is, do I have responsibility? And at some level, because the world is not so distinguishable from a world that has free will, I do need to take responsibility for my actions, even if there are inherent reasons. Which for is absolutely the case now. Mm-hmm. But then what if one lived in a world where that wasn't the case? Yeah. Where where the deterministic nature of the universe allowed for incredibly accurate predictions. And so so you could say that in, in some respects that's a little bit like minority report. As yeah, yeah, I was thinking about that. But, but it, it, it goes in a different direction. To, it's not really concerned with that kind okay, of thing. I can't wait to watch it. Now, what to what extent, though, does... Well, I've heard two words applied to the series. You talked to me about quantum mechanics and I heard the word multiverse applied. And... Do the, are those manifest? I mean, I, again, I don't want you to reveal anything you don't want to reveal. But, well, but to what extent do those explicitly arise in the context? Because, of the, because there's a conversation about decoherence and uh, the, uh, the collapse of the wave, wave function, function. Mm-hmm. and so, and and then what interpretation one applies to that? Because, because also different interpretations uh, have different ethical mm-hmm. uh, consequences. So, Copenhagen has a different ethical consequence to Everett. For example, uh-huh. so so what it what the what the series is concerned with in some respects is ethical consequences, and so there's a there's an ethical consequence to determinism, and there's also an ethical consequence to multiverse, and by, so, and, certainly and, an emotional consequence. And let me just for the for the listeners and viewers clarify what context of multiverse you're talking about, because they may not know Everett, which is to ultimately say. One classical interpretation of quantum mechanics is that every time, every time you make any kind of measurement or observation or interaction, the the world literally branches because the quantum system is doing many things at the same time. When you observe one, the world branches, and there are many other universes which you'll never be a part of, in which in which the other stuff is happening. So they're always they're an infinite number of worlds, and at every instant it's branching into an infinite number of of other worlds. It's an it's an interesting it, from a it's a very it's one way to interpret the mathematics of yeah. quantum mechanics. Just so, and that's the kind of multiverse. There are other multiverses that physicists talk about, yeah, which is namely many many universes. And say in string theory, where there are eleven dimensions, there could be many parallel universes. That's a very different one. But you yeah, talk the, about that. The, there's tons of different yeah. multiverses. The 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 one that this is concerned with is uh, the one that is derived from the Everett interpretation. But but it is also talking about other things. I mean, in effect, it's also talking about Copenhagen and and name-checking other things like uh, Roger Penrose with a different interpretation. So, but but not name-checking as in just ticking a box, but but acknowledging that there are different ways of looking at this. Well, it's going to be fascinating to think about. By the way, after some other time, we'll have a conversation. I don't think interpret... I learned from a colleague of mine who was, when I was at Harvard, I still think was one of the most, he's dead now, but one of the smartest people there, that, um, and he said the problem with it, we shouldn't talk about the interpretation of quantum mechanics. 
we should talk about the interpretation of classical mechanics because the world is quantum mechanical. And any way you try and interpret the real world in terms of this rough approximation, you're going to come up with stuff that sounds like nonsense. You're, what you really have to understand is the world is quantum mechanical, and any Everett or any other way of interpreting it is just a way for us to try and understand, using our limited intuitive capabilities, maybe, something that, that maybe, is maybe. fundamental. And you know, maybe but, but, when we have a quantum computer, it can explain quantum mechanics to us. But, but if one was able to demonstrate that um, we lived in a uh, completely, entirely deterministic universe, that we could really demonstrate it. We live in a deterministic yes. universe and say... For this, just for the sake of argument, we could de- sort of demonstrate uh, that the Everett type many worlds is the thing that exists. I don't think we would then revert to the same kinds of life issues that one has in the classical mm-hmm. interpretation. I think there would be things that would be different. To to have free will taken away, I think, would make a difference to the way the world oh, functions. Uh, ex- explicitly taken away, where it was obvious to you at every step. That you where, know. where it was, pr- precisely. And I, I also think it makes a difference if you really, really do believe that as you're driving down a motorway, there is, not in a speculative way, but there is an actual equal state in which your tyre explodes and you crash and die. Mm-hmm. That That I don't believe that would would the, the the truth of that would end up not impacting the way people live i i think it would uh, but but anyway fa- uh, whether there'd be a quantum morality and a quantum ethics well you know i think the point our conversation demonstrates to me and i hope i can't i look forward to seeing the, the series that it's the questions that drive us and and i'm so happy you raise these questions and i hope you keep doing it and <laughs> and it's been a pleasure to talk to you thanks so much thank okay. you okay cheers I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a non-profit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.